Greetings. My name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 97 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 97, we are going to be talking a little bit about International's in-person meet coming up in just a little bit over four weeks away. We'll talk about uh, the different roles that people are going to be having in terms of officials and meet management and so forth, and talk a little bit about what everybody ought to be doing between now and uh, the start of that in-person meet in a little over four weeks. A um, couple of announcements with regard to the in-person internationals meet in terms of, I mean, not the actual meet itself, but just more fun things that are happening potentially at the meet. And then we'll probably spend the bulk of the episode talking about, for lack of a better definition, I'm calling it the instantiation of quizzing 3.0, which makes very little sense because you're like, well, wait a minute, does that mean we're in quizzing 2.0 right now? And I think the answer is yes, given a very large view of history, um, which is fairly big. And I'll explain what 1.0 and 2.0 are and then we'll just kind of speculate about what 3.0 could be and maybe we never get there but we'll, we'll just kind of speculate about what quizzing 3.0 could potentially be all about all right so with that said we'll jump into internationals in-person meet it's just a little over four weeks away uh as i've i think we've mentioned before the meet director is uh, zachary tinker uh quiz masters are going to be uh, uh, paul kruger uh, heather hobby and myself griffin shaver uh, we're going to have answer judges, Alex Mellon, John Foley, and Jeremy Swingle, probably. So Jeremy's got a work situation thing that it potentially may get in the way of him being able to commute out in time. It's He's probably going to be able to sort that stuff out, is my understanding, and he'll probably be able to be there uh, in person. Uh, maybe not on Tuesday, but he'll be there on Wednesday. I mean, and I should be clear, the, the quiz meet starts on Wednesday, but a few of us are actually planning on getting there uh, late Tuesday so that we can be, you know, rested and ready to go uh, for Wednesday's activities and so forth. So, um, and then let's see. Uh, so that's AJ's uh, for scorekeepers. We've got uh, Nick Perrin, uh, Xander Schaefer, uh, David Swindler, and Ann Foley. And for stats, we've got Grace Perrin. And that will round out our list of officials, at least in theory. I think the plan is if Jeremy is unable to make it, uh, then he's going to be, uh, we're going to call an audible and sub in Cuddy Welt in his place, uh, who is traveling, who is planning to travel out with the P&W uh, quizzing teams. So we've got a backup there in case that uh, doesn't work out. All right, so between now and the in-person meet, and so assuming most people are going to be commuting on, let's say, Wednesday morning and midday, with the exception of, say, like, teams that are really far away. So, like, P&W is going to be commuting on Tuesday, uh, and then they're going to, I think, they're going to get to their hotel really late on Tuesday. I think, like, after midnight, theoretically. Or no, 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 no. No, they're going to be able to, there, it's... Jeremy, who's going to get super, there super late on Wednesday. Um, I think the PNW teams get there like around 10 or 10.30 or something on uh, uh, on Tuesday evening. But everybody else is basically commuting on Wednesday, I think. Uh, there might be some exceptions here and there. But that said, uh, what should different people, depending upon their role, uh, what th should they be doing between right now and let's say each week over the next four plus weeks or so uh to get prepared in the most you know bestest way possible and so let's start with quizzers so scott from your perspective what should the next four weeks be like for you know a typical quizzer well a really good quality of a quizzer is being self-aware so being able to self-evaluate where your study is so um that's kind of key number one is to know what you're good at or not good at or what you want to be good at. <laughs> um, I would at this point I would probably be doing a lot of quoting. I think we're close enough that you can start really ramping that up. Um, so I don't know. It's it's a weird amount of time because I think four weeks is a pretty non-trivial amount of time. If we we're two weeks out, I would just say. Take whatever question type you think you are best at and try to get even better at it. Um, but since we're four weeks out, I think you can add acumen in a couple of different areas, depending on how much time you 
want to devote. Um, because given a list of, say, finish questions, it probably takes less than 20 hours, maybe even around 10 hours, to get real good at that list. So if you're willing to put in those 10 hours, um, 10 to 20 hours, and you already have that list, then you could get really good at, say, finished questions. Um, something like CVRs might be a bigger hill to climb since you kind of have to know the whole material. But, um, yeah, I mean, I would – it's kind of hard to say because I do think four weeks is a good amount of time. Um, but going back on things I've – on something I've said over and over and over – I think the biggest mistake people make is getting to slightly above average in multiple question types when you really should work to be amazing at a single question type before moving on to a next, um, a second one. So I, I would really just be tough on yourselves and say, do I think I'm one of the best three quizzers at, you know, am I one of the best three quizzers at, at the meet in this question type? Um, and if the answer is no, I would keep working on that question type rather than pick a different question type and move from the top 40 to the top 25. Yeah. And I mean, I agree. And I, I, four weeks is a big enough time span where your the, the days over the next four plus weeks should not be all the same, right? Like um, right now, you know, get more depth in a particular question set, uh, practice more, review more, uh, try to fill in your gaps, identify your gaps so that you can then fill in your gaps, right? So, mem you know, memorizing is still potentially on the table, not just review. Um, that's kind of where we're at with four weeks, right? Now, granted, you shouldn't be doing a lot of memorizing. It should be, you know, 90% review, but there is there is an opportunity here to to uh, increase your material knowledge right to get a little bit more specific uh to dial in and and shave off ever tighter tolerances on an, on a whatever your one two three question type specialties might happen to be whatever where, whatever your strategy happens to be now is a good time for that in maybe I don't know. And everybody's going to be different. So this is very hand wavy, right? And your your experience is going to vary. But typically, probably about two weeks from now or so, you want to kind of transition into more pure review, pure quoting, a um, couple of practices, uh, get yourself fairly comfortable without, uh, you know, practice in a way that you are going to perform because sometimes we practice in a way that strengthens our muscles but that's not how we're going to perform we want to perform we want to practice how we're going to perform in the last week or two uh right up before uh the the meet so that you don't have that sort of shift in mindset when you go from practice to performance because there's going to be a big shift anyway right you, you know the schedule is there other teams are there the the stress of the moment is there so you want to try to minimize that kind of i don't culture shocks not the right word but the, that sort of situational shock you want to minimize that by getting yourself into a pattern of performing in practice how you want to perform at the actual meet like the last couple of weeks but then you know depending on who you are you may want to consider throttling back the the last few days before the meet like before you um uh, before you travel. So reduce the intensity of your, uh, practices, you know, still, you know, review, maybe listen to the material, uh, on audio, you know, that kind of thing. So it's, it's, you're still keeping it fresh in your head and that kind of stuff, but you're, you're giving your brain a chance to kind of rest up a little bit, store up some energy. The commute to the meet is going to, you know, depending upon where you're commuting from is going to be non-trivial for certain teams, you know, I throw PNW in there. PNW's commute is going to be extremely non-trivial. Uh, so take that into account. Give yourself an opportunity to, to rest, um, you know, that kind of stuff. And rely on your coaches. You know, your coaches have, have done this a number of times before. So, you know, rely on the wisdom of your coaches. But there's going to be that kind of transition time. It's not going to be four weeks of everything is exactly the same with a ramp up of energy uh, toward the end. Yeah, I think that's good advice. Um, yeah, I don't think I don't have anything to add to that. Okay. Well, how about coaches? So for coaches, ooh. So the first key is knowing exactly where your team is at. 
as far as material knowledge, proficiency on each question type, coverage on all of the question types, because based on what that is, it's going to drive your strategy. Um, what to say on that? Because the unfortunate thing about inter- internationals is that for the for a large part, you can't pick the jumping speed that will get you an accuracy where you can score if your material knowledge isn't there. And so if your material knowledge isn't there, the only thing you can do is just jump at the speed that everyone else is jumping at, knowing that you will most likely have a 30% accuracy rate for the meet, but you might have a random quiz where your accuracy is 65% and you score well. <laughs> so, um, I mean, I think if, you, if, if you're a coach, I would just be encouraging your quizzers to do exactly what we just recommended that quizzers do. <laughs> I think so. I think there's a uh, coaches need to kind of mind read what's going on with their quizzers, which can be fairly difficult. A lot of quizzers are, you know, very there's a lot going on inside their head. Uh, They may not show it, you know, all the time, but there's a lot going on uh, upstairs. And so you kind of have to, you know, mind read the kids, uh, understand where they're at, push them, but don't push them too close to their breaking point. You want to stretch them without stretching them too far because you want to make sure that they're, you know, not worn out with practice by the time they get to the meet, right? You want to, that energy factor is extraordinarily important, right? And it, it, it is more than just something that you can recuperate over the course of 24 to 48 hours. Like you, you need a pattern of, you know, maybe three, four days kind of leading in, uh, that has to be done very strategic, uh, strategically. So working with your quizzers, trying to figure like, like what you're saying, Scott, like, like figuring out where each of them is and how each of them is going to react to certain levels of pressure and what sort of pattern of prep, rest, recovery and gear up to question one in competition. What's the best pattern for each quizzer? Uh, figuring that out is not easy and it's not going to be one size fits all. And so the, the more a coach can do that, the better. I think coaches also should take an opportunity now to, you know, re, re, re review the rule book. Um, there's really going to be no surprises, fortunately, which is a very good thing. There should be, there should never be any surprises, but nevertheless, re, uh, re review the, the rule book. Just get yourself extra familiar with it. Uh, get yourself prepped and ready mentally to engage at a level of, say, protesting if that needs to come into play and how you're going to deal with the situation if that comes into, you know, being that you have to deal with as a coach. So kind of getting yourself kind of psyched up a little bit is is a worthwhile activity as well. Yeah, and I would figure out the cadence, I kind of call it the cadence that you want for your team as far as what processes are you going to have in place that will be consistent? Are, you know, is how long before each quiz are you going to meet? Are you going to have your team watch um, a full quiz of the quiz master before you quiz? Are you going to debrief after the quiz? Um, like just kind of ha- having all of that decided as a coach will be very helpful for you. But then I would all I would always want to kind of play out different scenarios in my head and decide how I would handle them. Like let, I would want to know um, who my main substitute is and I would want them to know that, like that shouldn't be a surprise. Um, I want to know what to do if my very top quizzer is just doing terrible um, and just kind of work through some of those scenarios so that you're prepared um, once it comes to the meet. Right. Well, and, and go through not just to the top quizzer, but like go through every quizzer and say, what's going to trip up that quizzer? What's going to cause them to lose their focus? And what can I do in those scenarios to help them get their focus back? Right. Um, there's there was a time, you know, internationals uh, quiz where a particular quizzer took a loss, uh, one particular quiz loss particularly hard. I think I don't think he aired out, but I think he got um couple of errors and he was he was taking it pretty hard because his team was uh missed it by just a little bit or something like that i forget i forget the exact scenario but he was taking a a a quiz loss pretty hard uh and you know having a coach who can go over to it you know number one recognize it's happening number two go over to him counsel him help him encourage him uh get his 
get his brain to say, okay, that's, that quiz is over now. <laughs> let's move on. Let's, let's focus on the next one. Let's, let's think about what's upcoming, uh, being able to recognize that in each of your quizzers and it's going to present itself differently with each of your quizzers and then helping them, you know, literally coaching them, right. Helping them move from one environment to the next in terms of, or one quiz to the next and, and getting them as close to hundred uh, percent ready for the next question as possible. That's all going to be stuff that, you know, if you can work out those strategies ahead of time, you're going to be a far better, a far more effective coach, I think. For sure. But the reason I called out like the scenario where your top quizzer is doing really poorly is you probably have thought through managing a lot of your other quizzers, right? If you have quiz some quizzers that are, are really only going to be competitive on a single question type, you've thought about how am I going to manage this, right? Um, but sometimes I think you overlook your top quizzer and what do I do if they go 0 and 2 for three straight quizzes or something like that? Yeah, totally. All right, so Quizmasters, what should Quizmasters be doing over the next uh, four weeks? I'm glad you asked. So <laughs> I think I think Quizmasters should be Quizmastering if possible. And I really don't think that Quizmasters Quizmastering for, say, their own district's internationals practices is unfair to anybody else. I, I think it's, you know... Um, especially because Quizmasters don't have access to the internationals questions, and I don't know. Um, I think it is better for everyone if the internationals Quizmasters have been practicing themselves. Yeah. Um, I think one thing that would be ideal is for Quizmasters to record themselves and make it available to everyone, because because some Quizmasters um, have different mannerisms, and you don't want that to be a surprise, right? It shouldn't be a competitive advantage to um, Quizzers that have that have um, seen you Quizmaster before. Um, I would probably familiar, familiarize myself on the rulebook, um, read it through again, especially because I'm assuming Quizmasters are already familiar with the rulebook, and when you are already familiar with it, you can read it through really fast because you can skip over stuff like when are substitutions valid and when are you know there's there's a lot of stuff that you can kind of skip over to get to the okay these are my prompts. These are my, um, like, how I rule. Um, so, I mean, I think Quizmaster prompts and correct and incorrect are really the things that you should just go over. Um, and again, just like as a coach, I think it's useful to go through scenarios. I think it's useful to go through scenarios as a Quizmaster. Because, um, I mean, you've Quizmastered before. Like, you know the kinds of challenges that come up and, you know, maybe page through the material and see like, oh, what if a quizzer says this synonym? Would I accept it as correct? And you just start exercising those muscles and, you know, what part of the rulebook would I cite to say you are correct or you are not correct? Um, I think that's useful to kind of get yourself in in the, the mindset of quiz mastering. So let's see here. Practice, uh, make a recording of yourself available if you can do that, familiarize yourself with the rulebook. One thing that I never did but would be great is if you know your answer judge pairing, um, talk to them. Um, I always would just do this once I met them at the quiz meet, and that was always enough time. But it's use. I always wanted to talk through, like, how should I do rulings? Like, do you want me to always check with you? Do you want me to only check with you if I have a disagreement? Um, because based on that, like, Mo I think almost all quiz all answer judges were like, oh yeah, like you don't have to look to me for assent. Like just if you're c confident with a ruling, go ahead. But in that scenario, I also wanted to make sure that they were like um, prepared to get my attention if they weren't comfortable with something, right? Or for them to know, like if I start giving a ruling and they're like, wait, like for them to like immediately get my attention. Because I think if you're not prepared for that as an answer judge, you might just let the quiz master go along with whatever they're ruling. Um, and so I wanted to have those discussions because to me, the table should always rule as the table, even if there is disagreement among the table. Um, that is not information that anyone else should have to care about ever. <laughs> right, um, right. And so I wanted it to be very clear, like, what do we do when, um, you know, we don't agree on something and how can we hash it out in the, in the most efficient manner? Yeah, indeed. And I mean, we, we, I, I mean, I pretty much, I, I agree with everything you said. Uh, I, and I, I think you actually covered everything. I'm trying to think if there was something that 
I was thinking of before that you didn't say, but I don't think there is. I mean, it is a little bit kind of cheaty in a, in a sense that we we know who the quiz masters and answer judges are. So like, I don't, I, I actually, I don't think I've ever met Paul. Maybe I have, but I don't remember. So I, I don't, I don't know where he is uh, with his quiz mastery, but I mean, obviously, you know, met Heather several times, uh, worked with Heather uh, at least once directly and then uh, indirectly, like in different, we were in different rooms at a couple of different quiz meets and, but we were, uh, I was her answer judge and she was a quiz master at one meet. Um, so, I mean, obviously I have huge levels of respect for Heather and she's awesome in just about every way when it comes to quizzing. So, you know, I, I, I do not doubt that, um, she will be fully prepared, uh, for the meet, but yeah, like what are sort of in, in a more general sense, what should quiz masters be doing? I think reviewing the rule book, probably not now, but definitely a couple of days or a day before the meet starts. And I would go, read the whole thing. I wouldn't, um, I mean, maybe, maybe that's something I would slightly dis disagree with about. Um, yes, I think you can skim it and, and go fast, but I think it's, there's, there's a usefulness to the discipline of forcing yourself to read it because I mean, it's not that hard. It's not that big. Um, even the old rule book with all of the, you know, the cruft that we have, you know, removed in the, you know, next iteration V1 of, of the, of the rule book, uh, it's, it's a fairly short rule book. You can get through that fairly straightforwardly. Um, my tradition has, tends to be, uh, to review the rule book, uh, on the commute to the meet. Um, so like if I'm flying an airplane, I'll review it on the airplane. Of course, this time that's not going to work because I'm flying the airplane. So I can't both review the rule book and fly the airplane at the same time. Um, but I will have Wednesday morning. So, you know, my plan is wake up. Wednesday morning, grab some breakfast and then sit down and just read the rule book, uh, cover to cover. Cause it's like, it, it's one of those things where if you encounter, when you're reviewing the rule book, if you encounter something that you think is different, right? In other words, if the rule book says X about something and you thought Y and you read X, you're, you're, you're going to notice it and go, Oh, I am wrong about why I should shift Y to become X. Right. And that's fairly easy to do and can happen very quickly and effortlessly. Right. You're like, you're like, Oh yeah, I, I remember remembering X, but somehow in my mind, it shifted to Y over time. And now I'm getting it corrected back to what it should be for X. What's a bigger problem is thinking that Y rule is a thing and there is no Y rule in the rule book right? That I've seen that happen with quiz masters, answer judges, coaches, even very, very experienced coaches where they've, they've thought of something. They think it's a rule. It it's a, it's why, and there is no why in the rule book. And in fact, there's no X to actually in the rule book to say, no, why isn't actually a thing. And so with a short glance through the rule book, a skim through the rule book, it's very easy to not have why be corrected. And even with a, you know, a detailed read through, you can still keep why around in your head, right? But it, it, it at least gives you the best chance of noticing that why isn't actually a rule. And, you know, you need to kind of uh, be able to back off from that. Practicing. I totally agree, Scott, what you're saying, like uh, any time that you can practice quiz mastering uh, so much the better. And even set up an artificial situation where, you know, if you've got a, you know, a couple three teams that you're practicing with, you know, have them do a pedantic challenging slash protest quiz just for the, you know, have them try to saturate you. So like, you know, I was talking about flying an airplane. One of the things they do in, uh, for, it's not really official training, but it's something that unofficially a lot of, of pilots, myself included, will do to keep our skills up is uh, every so often we, we have to do a, a flight review uh, with an instructor uh, to stay current. And one of the things I'll ask my instructor to do is after we've want, run through, you know, the basics and, and all the stuff that we're required to do, I'll ask my instructor to what's called task saturate me, um, which is, you know, it'll be, we're flying along and it'll be like, he'll start 
you know, saying, okay, well, you just uh, flew into a cloud, so put your goggles on so you can't see out the windows. Okay, now you just lost your right engine. Okay, now you have to, you know, climb, you know, 1,500 feet. Okay, now turn to this heading, and you just lost your comms. And, you know, and he just throws things out at me, left and right, left and right, until I get to a point where, like, I'm starting to drop the ball a little bit, and then he'll back off just a little bit, so I can kind of recuperate, but not much. And then it'll just push it a little bit further. And he's just kind of trying to find where is that, that point where the tasks overwhelm the pilot and figuring that out and just kind of gently trying to push that right as a quiz master. I think you can, you, you, you can put everything on hold for a minute. You can pause the simulation, right? You have that power, um, that pilots are, do not get to do, uh, so you have a little bit, you have some options, but being, but recognizing that you're getting task saturated, recognizing the order of operations that you need to do things, especially in certain contexts, like, uh, you know, uh, when you're following along an answer, uh, that's very, very time critical. And you have to be able to do two or three things simultaneously. That's an important skill to practice. And I think it only, it can really only come through practice and very similarly, like for, for quizzers, right? work on it now up until maybe a few days prior to the meet and then kind of back off a little bit on it. Give your brain a day or two to rest and be at a hundred percent when you're ready to rock and roll. Yeah. So let's see here. So you said one of the biggest downfalls of a quiz master is thinking a rule is a rule when it's not. And that's why you should reread the whole rule book. Um, I definitely agree that that is a bad situation. Um, and I would hope that reading through the rule book would solve that. But in my experience, it seems like people that think a rule is a rule when it's not, it's usually because it's just local to their district and they assume that it's not just local or forgot that it's not. And it's just kind of a, but that's more of a symptom that they're not trying very hard as an official. Because you would think if you're going to officiate for internationals, you should be very clear on what might be just tribal and local to your district and what's not. (laughs) So, I mean... (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I mean some may, of it, maybe we can jar people into, uh, you know, not being lazy about their duties. But yeah, and I mean, generally speaking, I would say that that's probably true most of the time. But I I have encountered at internationals uh, folks who genuinely thought there was a rule in the internationals rulebook, and it wasn't something local. And they would even go so far as to say, like, yeah, I don't think we do this in our district, but there is a rule that says blah. And and I'm like, oh, really? I don't know this rule. Can you find it for me? And they'll skim through the rule book and search and search. And then they'll be like, oh, I guess it's not a rule. I thought for sure it was. And, you know, it's like stuff like that is really hard to self-identify unless you're you're reading through the whole thing. And even if you're reading through the whole thing, it's pretty easy to miss. Um, it's uh, I mean, that's I, I, I part of I I. I am assuming Zach is going to do the same sort of uh, structure as in previous meets where the quiz master and the answer judge are not in a given room are not from the same district. And I think that's a helpful uh, check on that. Uh, But ultimately, you know, the biggest, uh, the biggest way to avoid that is just review the rule book. Don't assume, you know, Uh, actually read every word uh, before you, uh, you know, get into the meet. Yeah, I think it is fairly rare, though, for a quiz master or an official to think that a rule exists when it doesn't. I think it's way more common to just, like, miss a situation because you weren't paying close enough attention. Um, I, I guess I don't really have a point, but I think it's it's been fairly rare in the times that it has happened. It was like, yeah, that official just knew the rule book a lot less than the other officials. <laughs> right. Um, All right, so compare oh, – and like, oh, sorry, you have one more? I have random things, but maybe – did you want to go on to like answer judge prep? Well, kind of. I, I mean, if you got something specific QMs, I want to sort of compare and compra- uh, compare and contrast the answer judge prep to the QM prep because I mean, there's certain things the answer judge is going to prep on that is going to be incorporated into the QM. Um, is there anything the AJ is going to need to prep that the QM doesn't necessarily need to prep? Right. Okay. Let me hit some QM stuff first. Okay. Um, a few things that I did as a quiz master is 
Um, I recognized how during any protest, the vibe in the room just dies. And so I made a point of preparing in advance to say, if there was ever a protest, I would tell everyone who was remaining in the room, you can do whatever you want. You know, you can leave the stage. People who aren't quizzing can go onto the stage because I wanted to do whatever I could to not have the, the tone of the room just die. Um, and then since there has been um, kind of an anti-challenge sentiment perpetuated at internationals, um, I had a spiel pre-quiz to say like, hey, we just want to get things right. And I'm not going to get it right 100% of the time. So please, like I need your help to help the room get all the rulings right 100% of the time to kind of make sure that everyone felt like, hey, like I want a challenge. Like I want to help the entire room be fair for everyone all the time. Um Another thing as a quiz master to prepare for is how do I communicate with the meet director um, when I absolutely have to get a hold of them and have them respond immediately. Mm. And then your create a hypothetical is great. Like I remember teaching scorekeeping to a bunch of like um, parents who had quizzers and I devised a quiz that stressed every single rule that might come up with scorekeeping as far as like third and fourth person bonuses or um, second place with less than 50 points. And like, you know, a team tries to take a t timeout, uh, two timeouts after question 17, just, you know, like everything. And I created it to, to force knowledge of it. And I did the same thing when I was coaching an internationals team to pick a captain. I created hypothetical scenarios and then had the quizzers basically act them out with a script. And one of them um, was the one who was being tested. And I wouldn't tell them what specific thing I was testing them on. If there was something you should challenge or not, I would just let the situation play out and see what happens. Um, and so if as a quiz master, international's quiz master, you have access to someone who will create a hypothetical and put it into play for you at a practice to stress um, some of the more difficult parts of being a quiz master, that would be ideal. Yeah, indeed. So then on to your answer judge question, basically kind of compare and contrast the duties. And boy, I mean, so answer judges are just doing a lot more checks. I mean, I think you would want to be as familiar as you can with validity as an answer judge, because if a question is invalid, the ideal is that it never gets asked. But as a quiz master, I think you are almost never doing that evaluation before you start asking a question. Um, something might catch your eye because it looks weird, but you aren't, say, looking up everything <laughs> before you ask a question, right? Um, so I think an answer judge, be prepared to, like, like just go through everything for a valid question and an invalid question. Um, as soon as you get access to the questions before each quiz, I would start checking things. Um... And then really, the other main value of an answer judge is the second set of ears for what a quizzer said. So I think, I don't think answer judges need to have as robust a knowledge of the rulebook as the quiz master does. I think it, it would, that's ideal. But I think for the most part, like when I utilized my answer judges, it was, did you hear what I hear? Or did you not hear what I think I didn't hear? Um, and then the next layer of that was quizzer said this is it enough for them to be counted correct is it enough for them to be um, considered out of context and like going back and forth with what is your justification yay or nay um but it wasn't do you know this rule i don't know this rule <laughs> you know yeah yeah um i think one thing that you know for internationals in particular uh, the answer judge should get very comfortable with whatever tech they're going to use. Um, so whatever it happens to be, right? So we're going to probably have, I actually have no idea what, what Zach is going to plan for us. I mean, I'm assuming we're not going to use CQLT or not CQLT. We're, we're not going to use CBQZ. Um, and so we're going to have like printed questions or something like that. So, uh, you know, if the answer judge has CBQZ loaded up with the material to be able to search for things, just be, you know, have it get very, very comfortable with the hotkeys. Uh, don't use your mouse. Uh, understand how to leverage all of the functionality of the material reference without having to use your mouse because you're going to be a whole lot faster and more accurate that way. Um, 
you know, so that takes a little bit. I mean, that's not, it doesn't require a ton of time, but, but, you know, if you, if you're starting from zero experience, getting comfortable with that, uh, tech is useful before the meet starts. Um, you know, I kind of disagree with you in this, in what you said about answer judges, not necessarily needing to know the rule book. I actually think they need to know it just as well as a quiz master, not because they're going to use it, but because they need to have as good of an understanding of the rule book because they are the best check against an error on the quiz master's part in terms of rulings, uh, short of a challenge, right? Now, obviously we want the challenge to exist. Challenges are good. They make things more accurate. Uh, but if the answer judge spots a mistake or spots a problem or, you know, recognizes one rule should be A versus B or something like that and can interject right then in that moment, then you get to avoid the whole challenge situation entirely, uh, theoretically, right? So like I would, I would say, you know, the more answer judges have, uh, a, you know, a strong, very strong grasp of the rule book, uh, the more effective they're going to be at their job. Now, again, not required, right? Because again, you know, effective, an effective quiz master plus the challenge process should be good enough, but, uh, a, a, a well-prepared answer judge is worth their weight in gold in terms of, you know, room efficiency and quality, I think in the bigger picture. No, I mean, I think that is the ideal. And I mean, I think back to the answer judges I've had at Great West and internationals, and it was great to have a tough ruling and just look over at them and get like a nod or a hang on. And I could just tell that they were thinking the same thing that I was right. Like they were yeah. aware of the, they were aware of the exact situation and knew the rule book implications. And, um, it wasn't like a blank look back. Um, so that that definitely helps because I think a lot of stress that you have as a quiz master is you really want to get everything right. And when it's just you, you're like, well, I should have to work extra. I should work extra hard because I don't trust myself fully. But when you have an answer judge, um, that really helps reduce a lot of the stress because you're like, OK, I can be pretty guaranteed that I'm not going to miss something super obvious because I do have this backup. Um, yeah. Well, and, and I mean, to touch on that, I mean, the answer judge, like, if you're a very well-prepared answer judge, your, your brain is going to be working very, very hard, right? Like, your brain will be working equally as hard as the quiz master's brain, right? If you are a well-prepared, engaged, uh, you know, doing your full job as an answer judge. The problem is that with the quiz master let's say their brain is operating at 100%, your brain as an answer judge is operating at 100%, they're getting feedback on everything that they do that signals to them that they're, they're operating at 100% is actually noticed, right? Because it is, it's noticed. And it's like, if they drop to 97%, it will be note the 3% will be noticed, right? Like there, there's a, there's an obvious, almost immediate, like, oh, the quiz master lost concentration right there, you know, kind of stuff. Uh, maybe it doesn't have a direct impact, but like it is things that, that, that can be noticed and can be noticed by the quiz master very easily. Right. With an answer judge, when you're operating at a hundred percent, like, let, let me see if I can describe this. Um, Let's say you operate at hundred percent for 10 questions. And then for four questions, you operate at 4%, right? And then you go right back to hundred percent. And if nothing weird happened during those four questions, if, if it was, you know, four interrogatives, they were super straightforward there, uh, you know, everybody got them correct. It was, nobody was out of context, easy questions, whatever, or, or maybe it was a quote and it was clear that the person quoted everything correctly, word perfect or something like that. Like the fact that you were operating at 4% is like, there's no, there's no acknowledgement of that, right? Like there's no, uh, you can, you can hide it, right? Not that, not that I'm saying answer judges are going to do that, right? But, but it is possible to hide, uh, a mental distraction as an answer judge. What, what makes and so that can be draining after a while, right? The idea that, you know, you're operating on hundred percent for, you know, question after question, quiz after quiz, it's, it's definitely going to be, be mentally draining and it's going to feel like, well, am I actually doing anything? Like, like, like what's the point of me doing this? And then there will be that one question that comes in and you 
operating at a hundred percent saves the day, right? It, it's and and that sort of thing. Like answer judges are like Superman. Like you never see them until somebody falls off the side of a cliff at Niagara Falls, and then all of a sudden they're Superman to to grab the kid and save the kid's life, and yay, right? Um, that's I mean, ideally, that's what the answer judge is 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 a a superhero who is paying attention, but nobody, nobody recognizes that they're paying attention until the superhero moment. Right. Yeah. It can kind of be a thankless job, like a, an American football kicker where if you keep making kicks, no one notices, but then when you have to kick the game winning field goal or uh, extra point and you miss it, then you seem like you ruined everything, even though you just ruined the last 1% and right. uh-huh. the, your team had an effect on the first 99%. Um, it can be like that a lot of times with an answer judge, isn't it? Not that we've seen answer judges fail, but it's like you can do your job perfectly and no one will ever know most of the time. Exactly. Yeah, and and to to a degree, I think an answer like an answer judge who's going to really truly put in 100% all the time, I think in some ways they have a harder job than the quiz master because they might not ever get any kind of positive feedback or any kind of feedback, right? Um, the quiz master is constantly getting feedback and is constantly, you know, having conversations and so forth. The answer judge is, you know, you, you have to convince yourself that, no, I really do have to operate every question at a hundred percent. Um, and, um, because you never know when it's absolutely going to be essential that you were involved. Yep. All right, well, let's um, move on to a couple of announcement-y kind of things here. So I did mention that um, I'm going to be flying as in piloting. Uh, so there is a, an air, I'm call, we're calling it air quizzing, air quizzing flight one and two uh, with service from the Pacific Northwest to Toledo and back. Uh, and so I'm going to be flying, it's going to be a, a, our, our twin engine, Piper Seneca, and uh, along with me, my son, uh, Xander Schaefer, and then David Swindler. And like I was saying probably uh jeremy swingle although maybe not on the way out but but possibly on the way back uh depending on what his schedule is going to look like uh so that'll be kind of entertaining uh if anybody is particularly interested uh you can i don't know why you would care but our our flight our our tail number is november 33832 so if you wanted to track our flight um with like flight aware or actually flight radar i think is even better um you uh, you can do that. So November three three eight three two, the PNW teams are going to be commuting almost in parallel with us. They're flying commercial, uh, and they're 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 going to end up commuting a little bit longer than than we're going to be commuting because they've got you know they have to deal with uh, TSA and a, a layover in Chicago and that kind of stuff. Um, but you can uh, track their flights as well. And if I'm understand, if I uh, hopefully this is still true, Scott, you're still planning to drive out to the meet, right? I believe so. Okay. That would be really cool <laughs> because for a couple of reasons. Um, so uh, episode 100, it turns out that theoretically, and it actually is looking increasingly likely to be the case, that we are going to be able to record episode 100 of Inside Quizzing at internationals in front of, in, in front of a live audience. Uh, that is not 100% confirmed, but, uh, you know hopefully better than 50 uh, 50 probability and if that is the case we would like to know what topics we should cover so uh, it'll be kind of an interesting moment the entire rulebook committee the the four of us will be there in person we've also got a lot of the former guests who have been on the show over the last you know couple three four years how long have we how long have we been doing this three years been a while yeah so we're on episode 97 definitely two if it was three, that means what? We've done it at 60% of the weeks? Eh, maybe about three. Maybe. Could be three. Yeah. Um, so anyway, we've got uh, former guests who are going to be there. So, you know, Zach, obviously, Heather, Alex, Jeremy, um, probably maybe some others that I'm forgetting uh, who are former guests might be at the meet. So we might be able to do like a former guests panel or something. I have no idea what we're going to do. So anyway, if you have better ideas than what I just came up with, which should not be that hard, we would like to hear from you. So please email us at iq at cbqz.org and let us know, or you can let us know what your ideas are in the Inside Quizzing uh, Slack channel. All right, so last topic, which is a big one and also a very fuzzy one. So I, I wanted to kind of walk through this idea of what could a Quizzing 3.0 
look like? And and when I say 3.0, I'm really talking about sort of an epic of quizzing, a really big, multi-multi-decade-long sort of instantiations of of what quizzing can look like. And I, I'll, I'll explain what I mean by, you know, 1.0, 2.0, and this hypothetical 3.0. So quizzing 1.0, uh, quizzing, I, I did a little bit of digging, not very much, but I did a little bit of digging and discovered that uh, Bible quizzing was started by Youth for Christ post-World War II, uh, so in the 50s, and it was uh, started in the U.S., and that was where quizzing programs started. And teams were associated with high schools back then, not with churches, because Youth for Christ was a uh, uh, Christian, actually, actually, I think it's still, I think pretty, they still exist, I think. Um, and they do uh, uh, connections within high schools, uh, junior highs and high schools. And so uh, t- uh, quiz teams were formed from a particular high school, almost like it was a high school sport, in, in a sense. Uh, local programs organized around geographic school district groupings. So you might have two, three, four, five school districts in an area, and that would be sort of the, the a, a a grouping, a, a geographical grouping of teams that would compete against each other. Te- there were um, very similar to how we do quizzing. There were three teams of four. Um, a quiz out happened after five correct questions. Uh, three incorrect was an error out. And um, you might find this amusing, but uh, you know when they started doing this in the very late 40s and early 50s, they had everybody sit on a, a row of chairs. Uh, and the quizzers, so there would be an, a jump judge and a jump judge would hold up an index card in front of them and make it so that all of everybody's heads were just ever so slightly below the rim of the card from the, the viewpoint of the jump judge. And whichever head went above the card was called the person who won, uh, the jump. So it's an interesting formulation. Uh, and that did well. It, it, uh, grew for a number of decades. It started to wane in the 1970s. And then right around the same time, that's when quizzing, what I'm calling quizzing 2.0, uh, started. So it started with, I think, the Nazarene program in the, in the mid 1970s. And then you had the Alliance and the Assemblies programs starting in the early and in some cases mid 80s. Teams were associated with churches in these programs, not with high schools, because you're talking about this was very, uh, denominational in, in organization. So local programs were organized around denominational district regions, right? So in, in CMA, that we've got our, our, our districts, the CMA districts. Uh, and in Nazarene and, and assemblies, same sort of idea. They'd have their, their, their districts or regions or whatever they would call them, uh, for their denomination. And then the churches within those geographic areas were the ones that would, uh, quiz together. And same sort of idea, right? Three teams of four quiz out after four correct questions and so forth. And in quizzing 2.0, a couple of things that are noteworthy about, uh, 2.0, like number one, it was organized, organized around the church and the, and the denomination, not around high schools. Um, it was denominational, whereas the Youth for Christ was not, right? Youth for Christ was, uh, uh, non-denominational and it was just across high schools, right? Uh, so a single high school wouldn't have, say, two or three different styles of quizzing. They would just have the one, uh, style of quizzing. Uh, so in Quizzing 2.0, it was organized around denominational, uh, structures and churches. And, uh, there was the beginning of the use of electronic equipment, but like, you know, Scott has talked about several times in the past, probably me too. Uh, the, a lot of the choice of technical equipment evolved from a, how do we do our current process a little bit better rather than, well, do we want to reinvent the process now that we no longer have to do the, 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 the same thing because we actually have tech, right? Um, so that's where we, we continue to have jump pads versus, uh, you know, hand buzzers, that kind of thing. Uh, well, oh, sorry, in Alliance, that is not the, that's not true in certain other programs. Other programs have switched to hand buzzers, right? So, uh, that's sort of something that you see in Quizzing 2.0 is the starting of the use of electronic equipment. There were published concordances and other sort of printed materials that were later replaced with software in not all cases, but in, in a lot of cases, a lot of that's done with, with software now. And what I would say quizzing 2.0 started to wane in the early 2000s. It's still going strong, but it's definitely, 
you know, the, the Zenith was in the, I would say in the late nineties and it's, it's been slowly waning ever since then. I think waning faster and faster each year. But, but I think the beginning of the waning process was in the early two thousands. This is of course, very fuzzy and hand waving and all that kind of stuff. Right. Okay. So that's what I'm calling quizzing 2.0. So here's my hypothetical or not even a hypothetical. It's really more, I guess, a speculation. What would a quizzing 3.0 look like? What could it look like? Right. And I'm not suggesting that we do anything about this. I'm not suggesting that we abandon, you know, quizzing 2.0. Never, never. Rather, I'm just sort of like looking forward, you know, two, three, four decades into the future thinking like, what would quizzing 3.0 look like? Right. What would, what would it be organized around? Right. Um, if not churches or high schools, but maybe something else, maybe, maybe we actually organize it around high schools and not churches anymore. Um, who knows, right? Maybe it's a hybrid model. Maybe it's some third option. Um, do we consider merging some denominationally locked programs together? Do we get, uh, you know, so for example, the Nazarene program is, is in a little bit of a decline. The assemblies program is in decline. Do we consider taking the Nazarene Alliance and assemblies programs and merging them together and then opening them up to uh, any denomination that wants to participate? But of course, if we're not organized around churches in a 3.0 world, what would that look like, right? Um, they're, all programs would be uh, open by default, just like, you know, in Quizzing 1.0, the Youth for Christ was, was non-denominational. It was open to anybody, right? And then sort of this big question is... Um, if that's going to happen, does quizzing 3.0 just inherit 2.0 and make incremental improvements? Or do we start over with like, identify the mission, get really clear on it, identify, you know, current and future tech, and then start developing a program that actually leverages the tech to fulfill the mission in the most efficient, logical way? Uh, do we consider, you know, translations, you know, uh, or uh, of the rules versus creating new rules. Um, all of that kind of starts to come into play. So anyway, I've, I've talked a whole lot, but Scott, what do you think about the, this, this 3.0 speculation stuff in any, I mean, there's a lot to talk about and unpack here, but what are, what are your thoughts? Yeah. I'm trying to think of a framework to even talk about it because I'm not sure what would a, like what specifically led quizzing from 1.0 to 2.0 as you are labeling them. Um, it seems to me that participation in quizzing is a secondary, tertiary, or lower aspect of someone's activities and their life. And so I think, um, I mean, we are likely to see culturally and societally a shift in the way that we do education now, probably higher education before um, K through 12, but how that changes could have a large impact on any quizzing activities. Um, any changes to um, church structures and denominations could also have a large impact um, on quizzing activities. So I, I really don't know because I'm not a, I don't know. I don't know what, what fields I would have to be in to know, like an anthropologist, a socioeconomist? <laughs> Probably all of the above. I mean, it, it's, it's so, it, it's definitely speculation because it's like, we really don't know. We do see trends, right? I mean, we see the, the waning of, of activity in 2.0. And I think, I think that's really where quizzing 2.0 came about was there was a, a waning of 1.0 and some folks looked at what was happening with 1.0 and said, this is actually pretty cool. We should do this and how we can do this, how we can get, you know, engagement is to engage at the youth group level. Right. And that means, you know, working through uh, the denominational process, the, the churches within a particular denomination, that's the easiest way to get at youth who would, you know, potentially consider quizzing and to be able to, to, to grow a program. Right. I think we're shifting that universe. Um, I think folks, uh, you know, youth in most, uh, unfortunately, I think most evangelical youth programs are in decline. Uh, 
folks of, of that age, uh, you know, middle school, uh, high school are not as interested in those uh, programs as they used to be in, in years past. And so similarly, maybe, you know, over the next two, three, maybe four decades or so, we're going to be at a point where we need to consider a similar shift to say like, well, how, how will we organize ourselves uh, in terms of, you know, uh, ministerial connections, fel uh, Christian fellowship connections. Uh, I definitely don't see that going back to the high school unit. Um, you know, the high schools of the fifties and sixties, uh, that's not going to happen again. Uh, so where, what is the next step? Um, what is the next way that people are going to be connected? I mean, we can talk about social media to some degree, but that strikes me as very difficult to do anything with unless you're talking about virtual quizzing. And I'm hoping that doesn't become sort of the future standard of quizzing. I think there's, there's something very positive about in-person quizzing, uh, that, that I would, I would definitely miss if we didn't, uh, have, you know, the in-person part of it. So yeah, I have no idea. I mean, it almost kind of begins with this notion of like, well, how do we organize, uh, team ministries. Uh, I mean, they could still certainly be connected to a church, but they don't necessarily have to be. I mean, a large fam a couple of families in an area with uh, large enough numbers of, of kids could come together and they could easily have two or three teams uh, between a certain number of families or something like that. I mean, that could be all from one church. It could be a neighborhood program um, having nothing whatsoever to do with a specific church or denomination or even a high school, right? Um, so yeah, it's kind of like, where do we see ourselves organizing as human beings over the next, you know, 50 years? Right. And so I have no sense for this, but going a little more mainstream, do you have any sense if physical traditional sports um, are undergoing any decline in participation? They sort of, there are two, two trends are happening simultaneously. There is a decline in overall numbers um, but an increase of activity at the upper levels, if that makes any sense. So like, I don't know what the, maybe they still use the term intramural sport, right? Um, you know, like versus say junior varsity and varsity. I don't know if those terms are even used anymore. So if those are outdated, um, clearly I'm very old, but, uh, it used to be, you know, like, you know, when I was in high school, there would, there would be a varsity, you know, uh, basketball team or a varsity baseball team. And then there'd be a JV team and then there would be intramurals, right? And intramurals were, you know, it was, it was one step up from uh, a gym where it was like, you know, you signed up for the team and you had practices, you had games, but it was purely just done for fun, right? Uh, like there was, you weren't gonna, you would compete, but it was competing with like other teams that were in intramurals, maybe, you know, the other high school that was in town, you would do stuff between the two high schools. That was really it. There were no, you know, road games or anything like that. JV was basically like you went to JV because you weren't good enough to go to varsity yet. Right. It was like a proving ground. Um, and you would have your JV games. It's almost like the, the minors in, um, in baseball. Right. And then eventually you'd get called up into the farce, into the, onto the varsity team and the varsity team, uh, were the, the guys who were taking it very seriously and, and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, they would be doing competitions all across the state or, you know, the Pacific Northwest or something, that kind of thing. Right. So, you know, in terms of that stuff, um, intramural sport is in significant decline. The, um, and of course, this is very hand wavy, right? Because every every region is going to be different and unique. But in general, intramural stuff is in decline, whereas the varsity, junior varsity, you know, competition level uh, is increasing the amount of uh, not participation level, but the investment level, I think, uh, required investment level is going up. How interesting. Now, what you have mentioned is all centered around schools. So um, I also wonder how club sports or um, public sports are going because I only played being homeschooled. I mean, I, I guess I could have played sports with a high school, but since I was homeschooled, I only played organized sports with um, like public city leagues. Yeah. So there was yeah. no there was no concept of varsity, junior varsity and intramurals there. It was just, you know are you doing it or are you not? Um, but, yeah. but I ask because, um, you know, 
we live in an increasingly te- technological world and there's a, a rise in esports. And um, I was just wondering if there was a decline in general um, participation and engagement in the more mainstream and traditional sports, you know, because I mean, yeah. I think some sort of virtual quizzing could potentially be attractive, but obviously no one is saying, no one is saying let's do virtual baseball, you know, because that doesn't make sense. <laughs> right, uh, right. And, but quizzing is like, it could potentially make enough sense that if culturally that's the thing, then maybe. Um, but yeah. Well, I mean, you're, you're talking about esports, right? I mean, certainly that becomes very easily doable virtually uh, to some degree. I mean, I, I shouldn't say super easily because, I mean, they still have, they try to do in-person tournaments and so forth. And some of those can be huge. Uh, but yeah, it is an interesting universe. Like I, I don't, think we're going to be organized around high schools like like quizzing 3.0 i don't think it's going to be organized around high schools i don't think it's actually going to be organized around churches either i think there will be some church programs but i don't think it's going to be the primary thing because i don't i mean unless there's some sort of massive sea change uh and and sort of course shifting uh, culturally i i think youth programs in the evangelical church are in sort of a well, not just sort of, I think they are, are in decline and it's an unavoidable decline because we're, you know, I mean, to, to, to put it totally bluntly, like, do you want to spend your Wednesday, uh, you know, as a, in, when you're in junior high or high school, do you want to spend your Wednesday going to a youth program, uh, that is kind of the same old, same old and or or stay home and play video games and hang out with your friends online right um i i think a lot of kids are making the choice of like yeah i'd rather you know play video games at home and the parents look at that and say well okay sure you're playing video games but i also want you to do sports because i want you to actually get physically fit i don't want you to turn into a couch potato i want you to be healthy uh and so they look at like sports like you know baseball football uh, soccer, golf, whatever, some, some kind of sport, right? Like, like physical activity, uh, that's not Bible quizzing and Bible quizzing doesn't fit into any of those sort of worlds, right? I mean, there is a little bit of a physical component of, of quizzing, but it's, it's more a mental sport, uh, much more like chess. And I mean, that's in significant decline, uh, culturally, uh, these days. So yeah, I don't know. It'll, it'll be interesting to see what happens. It is, yeah, it will be very interesting because really the unique selling proposition of Bible quizzing is the spiritual side of it, right? And mm-hmm. that kind of has to be important to people for it to be a viable, like it to be attractive as an activity. Um, yeah. To a degree, I think there is a certain amount of, let's say, um, open deviousness. <laughs> I mean, well intentioned devi- deviousness to, uh, overtly trick youth into memorizing scripture. Um, it's sort of like, imagine if you had an obesity epidemic happening with high schoolers and you said, we need to get high schoolers to be more physically active. You can't just say, okay, everybody come out to the join the swim team or something like that. Right. Like, like you'd get a lot of, 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 I was going to say quizzers. They're not quizzers. You'd get a lot of youth kind of looking at that and going, no, I don't want to do that. Right. Um, so you have to sort of figure out more of a, well, how do I design an activity that is a lot of fun and also happens to include physical activity that actually gets it at what we're actually doing this for. Right. And so, you know, back is going to date me again, but you know, back in the day used to be, you would join, you know, girl scouts or boy scouts or something, and you'd go on hikes in the mountains or something. And, and it's like, okay, I'm enjoying the outdoors. I'm enjoying the hiking. I'm, I'm hanging out with a bunch of friends. We're setting up camp and tents and roasting marshmallows and s'mores and all that kind of stuff. Not terribly healthy, but we're, you know, physically moving around outdoors, experiencing the outdoors, that's a very healthy thing. And so that can be a very positive sort of thing toward the, toward the, 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 the core goal. So, you know, in quizzing, if we're saying, well, okay, we want our youth and really it's not just youth. We really want everybody to be biblically literate and to, to some degree, hopefully higher than, than, you know, the average. 
and to learn to love being biblically literate and increasing their, you know, individual biblical literacy. Uh, how do we go about doing that? And quizzing provides really the best mechanism for making that process extremely fun uh, and rewarding in the moment. And then the byproduct is that you have mature Christians who actually know their scripture and can defend uh, certain scriptural uh, points of view uh, as they as they uh, grow into adulthood, right? Um, ultimately, I think we need that to be able to save American uh, and uh, and UK, uh, not UK, sorry, Canadians, Canadian and 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 US uh, Christianity. I think ultimately needs to be saved through that process. And I think it's it's um, you know getting on my soapbox here, but I feel if we don't figure out quizzing and get quizzing to start growing again, I worry that this becomes an existential threat to Christianity in the U.S. and Canada over, say, the next 50 years. I, I see uh, U.S. and Canadian Christianity becoming increasingly like Christianity in the U.K., uh, and that is... Um, that's that scares me because, uh, you know, it becomes sort of this um, echo uh, and no longer becomes something that really uh, even a sizable majority, minority... Uh, participate in in any sort of meaningful uh way anyway, and on sorry. that bombshell. <laughs> right sorry giant bombshell there sorry i i don't have anything to add to that <laughs> sorry i just kind of went off on like a tangent all right so yeah that was definitely a bombshell um so happy thoughts everybody um and if you disagree with me or or scott please somebody disagree with me because i really hope i'm wrong um, I, I'm sounding very pessimistic and I don't want to be. Um, so please somebody email us and tell me that I'm wrong. Um, but anyway, if you have any sort of comments, feedback, disagreements, um, please email us at IQ at CBQZ.org. And you can chat with us at near real time on uh, Slack on the Inside uh, Quizzing channel. We've also got a Twitter account. It is at Inside Quizzing. And with that, I will say thank you all. And thank you, Scott. Thanks, Riffin. And thanks for listening, everybody. 